Hello. Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Aaron. And I'm Clara. And we will be the helpful dwarves who will guide you on this journey. That's right, folks. We're just really excited that the dwarves are helpful. That's right. We are very happy that the dwarves are helpful. They aren't getting just like completely dragged by the elves for not being tall and beautiful. <laughs> well, we've all been there, haven't we? I mean, no dragged one's as tall elves. or as beautiful as the elves, so I guess it's their prerogative to drag everybody. It's that. true. Uh, we got a lot of elves who get killed this week, so that's that's fun if you're a dwarf too, I guess, right? I suppose so. But the dwarves are very your, helpful. Your bullies, your bullies die. I know <laughs> they are for once. The dwarves are really helpful in this chapter. Um, so, ooh, yeah, this week we have another battle. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so creatively, <laughs> what? I was going to say, in case you can't tell, we are both thrilled about it. Oh, yeah. Just thrilled. Yes, To be talking baby. about a, a chapter that's just killing. There's so much to Truly, discuss when it's just... nothing uh, else happens. People moving around and... Yeah. Dying. Well, almost Or nothing. being cursed. Not dying. Yeah, uh, being cursed, being stomped into the mud. Yes, and it is a creatively named chapter know. as well. Chapter 20. Of the fifth battle. <laughs> Great. So this is, we now know, home, there this have been is, five. there have been five, and we have been bored since battle number one. Ugh. It's true. We can't help it. It's We're true. sick of them. We're sick of them. No. We, like, we get it, Tolkien. Yeah existence is pain we understand you have driven that point home time and time again i know for a guy who like had war trauma he writes a lot about war just living life between battles that's what people in middle earth are doing at this point (laughs) just counting down to the next one yeah pretty much but uh I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. We have uh, stuff we can say. Surely. Sh- don't call me Shirley. Don't call Shirley. Me Shirley. Shirley. Stuff can- <laughs> right. Some airplane uh, humor for all you yeah. nerds out there. Um, yeah, we heads. do have stuff to say. Even if we don't, we often come up with stuff. To <laughs> We're going to say it. <laughs> so. We do it all for you. We can do this. Dear listeners. That's right. This chapter does start off very strangely. Um, I'll give a little Mm -hmm. summary and then we can kind of dive into our main talking points. But the chapter starts off with actually this strange, uh, I think you called it a coda. I'm going to call it an epilogue about Baron and Luthien. Okay. So the first paragraph is about what happens to them after they come back to Middle Earth. Then we get into the actual action, the meat of this chapter, literally and figuratively. There's a lot of just like hacking and chopping it meat in this mm-hmm. battle. Um, 
basically, Maethros has decided it's time once again to assault Morgoth because it has worked so well in the past. We've done this. Uh, he gathers his people to him. Fingon, the High King of the Noldor, gathers his people to him. Turgon shows up from Gondolin. They're supposed to get help from some armies of men, and they're, like, ready to mm-hmm. knock down the gates of Angband and take Morgoth out and get their Silmarils back. Minus the one that Thingol still has, which Kelogorm and Kurufin yes. have threatened to take from him by force, but Maethros is like, it's fine, we'll just wait it out. <laughs> so thus yeah. begins the battle <laughs> of Nirnaith Arnodiad, or the Unnumbered Tears. Lots of people die. Lots of treachery happens. Yep. Uh, oh, the yeah. D- the dwarves show up in a big way. Glaurung the dragon is there. Gothmog, mm-hmm. our best big boy, is fighting. Fingon right. dies. Uh, Tuor, no, Kuor dies. Got. Yeah, Fingon gets got in a kind of graphic for Tolkien way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of those in this one. Yeah, Hurin gets killed. Uh, the king of Azagal, the lord of Belagus, the king of the dwarves dies. A lot of orcs die. We do know that. Yeah, Hurin but, slays I mean, them and chops their cares? arms off. <laughs> this is what, one of my favorite. Uh, while screaming. Just, while screaming. They shall, they come, shall again. come again. 70 times he uttered that cry. But I do love this. Um, For the orcs grappled uh, him with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms. What a very cool description. (laughs) Can you imagine being an orc and attacking this guy who's just screaming over and over again, day shall come again. And chopping off arms. (laughs) And also covered... Like covered like, in arms. That guy's arms. crazy. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere near him. Yeah, like I'd be, I'd be like, I'm out. I'm gonna go attack some other elves. This guy's um, nuts. Tolkien, it's like that episode of Hey Arnold, where Arnold pretends to be crazy to get out of a fight. That's right. It's the same thing here. It's a um, Sorry. the insanity, right? The insanity plea is always a good one if you're on trial. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if you're being uh, mobbed if you're being by, attacked orcs, by orcs, apparently. Um, and then yeah. after this battle, the elves kind of scatter. The sons of Feanor have really lost a lot of their power. It seems like they sort of accept that they're not going to get their Silmarils back by force. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the elves flee to an island where Círdan and Gilgalad kind of rally the remaining elves around them. Um Minus those who are at Gondolin still kind of hiding in their little mountain fortress. Um, And yeah, we get a big green, a big green hill at the end that is growing over the helms and spears and swords and bones of the slain of this battle. And that's kind of our final image is this green hill amidst this battle plain. We get a lot of those. We do. In this book. Hope amidst despair. 
perhaps is yeah. what That's we're right. supposed to get There's out of that. There's some grass on it, so everything might be okay. A grassy knoll. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's the summary, which, uh, as you can tell from Claire's summary, is just a lot of killing for the it's most part. a lot part. of killing. But we have a couple things I think we're both interested in, which is actually, honestly, the beginning and the end for the most part, I think. The, the middle part. Yeah, some of the, the I mean, some uh, of the middle part, we have some little talking points. But yes, the beginning and the end are yeah. interesting. Take it away, yeah. Aaron. <laughs> Shall we begin at the beginning? It's the best place to begin. That's what I've been told. So you mentioned uh, that Baron and Lucian get a mention here. The first paragraph of this Mm -hmm. chapter is just about them and what's happened to them since the end of of Baron and Luthien. Uh, I was interested in it for a couple reasons, mostly because it seems kind of like a strange out-of-place addition to this chapter at first, although Mm -hmm. I have some theories about why it's here, and it sounds like you do, too. I have no theories Um, about why it's here, but I agree that it feels very out-of-place and an interesting editorial decision by Christopher to Mm -hmm. put this here instead of at the end of the previous chapter, which is perhaps where it would have made the most sense. I I think so, yeah, at first, uh... First glance. But what's interesting, too, is... Um, so we're told a few things about them. They are just kind of the subject of gladness and fear at this point mm-hmm. um, by other people in in Middle-earth. Um, they effectively exile themselves. Um, they pass out of sort of the main part of Beleriand, and they go to Tolgale and the Green Isle, um, and they just sort of hang out there. We don't know what happens. Never hear from them again. Nobody knows where their bodies are. Um, they just sort of, I mean, honestly, it's kind of ideal. This is how I want to like go and live my life. Just sort of disappear right. to the green aisle and, and no one knows what happens to me. Yep. Um, but I think what's interesting for me is it does seem to connect to Mathros's sort of, uh, decision to unite against Morgoth. So like Baron and Luthien, right? They succeed against Morgoth by getting mm-hmm. a Silmaril back and this story seems to spread and like i don't know part of me wonders if mathros is like well these two goombas could go in there and steal a silver why can't i just get a bunch of elves and men together and go get it get the rest of them for myself so there's like this sort of arrogance maybe with with him because of this event yeah so that's your theory for why that's part of the reason it's here slotted in here as kind of a reminder yes i think yeah I think that's a strong theory because at the, like, after this kind of paragraph page break, it does say, in those days, mm-hmm. Maethro's son of Feanor lifted up his heart, perceiving that Morgoth was not unassailable, for the deeds right. of Baron and Luthien were sung in many songs throughout Beleriand. So, mm-hmm. obviously, you are correct. Yep. Like, he, Maethro's, heard about Baron and Luthien and thought, okay, great, I too can get a Silmaril. I still think it's interesting that again like but like why why is this in this chapter you you could have ended the previous chapter with this paragraph and still started with what i just read and it still would have made sense unless Mm -hmm. christopher Mm -hmm. anticipated that people would be doing a podcast about this book and would be 
you know, not just reading it straight through. <laughs> and I'm sure in 1970 or whatever he was. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I suppose it does have the function of, as I think you're saying, which is like connecting the two chapters a little more closely than otherwise they would be. Yeah. Like, so it's structurally they're yeah so they're much they're married much more closely because i think the part of the problem with baron and luthien is potentially it can be it can be a standalone tale as we've talked about Mm -hmm. so i wonder if this is a way to to make sure that the tale isn't sort of seen as kind of i don't know its own sort of thing within this larger story because i feel like there's a way you could read baron and luthien and see it as relatively divorced from a lot of the action that's happening around it and the Mm -hmm. sections around it um if it weren't for the sort of Silmaril angle of it, it would seem entirely unrelated at right. first glance. Um, so I wonder if this is just a way to remind the reader that the long section they just went through has sort of continued relevance or impact going forward. Yeah, I don't know. It isn't. It is an odd choice. Yeah, odd. I think there's another reason too. Maybe my my theory is that it's here because so we have kind of what happened to Baron and Luthien. They went and lived on the Green Isle, faded out of, you know, existence, mm-hmm. remembered in song, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. had a kid. Dior Aranel, the beautiful. Wow. <laughs> if only <laughs> I could be described in such a way. Um... <laughs> And, like, they, you know, lived this relatively peaceful and undisturbed existence. But they're living this peaceful and undisturbed existence while this chaos of these battles is happening around them. Mm -hmm. So I also think it might serve to, like, juxtapose kind of, you know, I think, like we talked about in the last episode, um how Baron and Luthien are like the little people, right? They succeed in getting a Silmaril. Mm-hmm. They go on to come back from the dead and basically live undisturbed on this island. And then Mathros is like, oh, I can go get a Silmaril and I need to do it with all these armies. And obviously that fails in a major way. So we see kind of like mm-hmm. the correct way to try to like get a Silmaril and yes. maybe the incorrect way. Um, <laughs> and sort of the aftermath of both of those, right? Here's the aftermath of Baron and Luthien taking a Silmaril from Morgoth. And then the aftermath of Maethros trying to take a Silmaril mm-hmm. back. Obviously like spirals out into essentially like cataclysm. <laughs> For yeah, right. Yeah, the end everyone, as everybody knows it. Um, yeah. So, I think that maybe that's part of the function as well. Mm-hmm. And also a reminder to everyone: Baron and Luthien don't even have the Silmaril. <laughs> right, they right, went and got right. it, but and the they reason don't they wanted it, it is yeah, not right, not really for themselves. Right. Um. So mm-hmm. I wonder if two Tolkien's making a statement right. about that here, kind of subtly, that like, if you seek yeah. to altruistically possess a Silmaril, can you? I don't know. But if your um, intentions are pure, 
you'll be fine. But if your intention is just like, mm, I'm going to go right. kill everybody, take the Silmaril, risk all these lives so I can keep this one special jewel, that's not going to end well for anybody involved. No, and I mean, that makes sense with what we get about Thingol here, too, where we're told that every day he looks upon his Silmaril and the more he wants to keep it forever and ever and mm -hmm. we're told such is its power so we have this very ring ring like moment from from the Silmaril um his precious there so i think right there's this contrast between yeah being able to give it up right you know to hand it over versus the sort of possessive hold it seems to have on everybody else mm -hmm. um baron and luthien are unaffected the little people are unaffected um but we have all these kings and leaders um who are as you said willing to essentially doom everybody in the pursuit of it right um so that's you know and they it, veil it yeah i think it's definitely there <laughs> and they veil it right in in the we need to destroy morgoth right morgoth is evil right. we need to destroy and assault him but by setting up kind of the mindset of Maethros as he heard about Baron and Luthien winning back a Silmaril. He decided to assault Morgoth. Right? That makes it very clear to the reader that his motivation is not just to, you know, mm -hmm. rid Beleriand of this right. great evil. It's to get his daddy's his daddy's toys back. <laughs> yeah, and it makes him cunning in a way that echoes, I think, Melkor a bit. Mm -hmm. too right we that talked we're seeing about... sort of how this desire yeah like bends people to behave in malicious ways or greedy ways right how feanor mirrored malcor mm -hmm. in the beginning and now we see his sons kind of mirroring that same kind of right. attitude or i don't know i guess attitude obsession yeah now yeah. Um, also, I found out looking yeah. in, the, in the back, I was like trying to re, like re, I don't know, I guess just remember all the family trees. Corfin <laughs> is the father of Celebrimbor. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Fun fact. Yeah. They are both, <laughs> Celebrimbor and Corfin are cited as being uh, the ones who are particularly problematic. Yeah, the, they're bad. They're the, the bad union boys. of of Maethros because they want to kill Thingol. Yep. Um, and and his people. They vow. They yeah. vow to slay him. I think, and also his people, right? Yes. I don't. So yep. yeah, all because they want uh, the Silmaril. Yep. Man. So anyway, I kind of forget where we were. Yeah. But no, that's okay. I I think we were basically just kind of wrapping up the idea of why it begins with Baron and Luthien, the way they sort of set up the calamity that follows uh, mm -hmm. by being sort of the only um, incorruptible people in this story. Yeah, right seriously. Um, with with maybe the exception of uh, Huron, possibly, but we can talk about that. Yeah, we're going to yeah, we're going to talk about um, Huron a lot in the next couple of weeks uh starting yeah. now yeah um in this chapter but, um, but 
but yeah, so I, I think they do kind of operate as a, uh, oh, I don't know, like a sort of yardstick for everybody else that follows in this sort of narrative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, these are the two who are able to set aside or, or not become sort of consumed with the what the Silmaril represented. They were more interested in what it represented for themselves and their future together. They give right. it up, they leave. Um, and I mean, I don't know, there's this kind of like um, saintly sort of aspect of their story and how it ends, I think. Um with going with the sort of line about none knowing where their bodies lie it's kind of this incorruptible like saintly incorruptibility mm-hmm. kind of by absence here rather than literally but um i don't know there's this way in which they sort of become despite being little people sort of the lar- larger symbols um in the narrative sort of like a guidepost for yeah. everybody else for us as readers really to figure out well why are things unfolding the way they are and and what sort of behavior should be modeled uh, versus what What's causing more problems? In case you didn't know from just reading the calamity that follows, but right. But it's also interesting because it, it begs the question: How do you then? How does anyone else pursue a Silmaril in a way that is quote yeah. pure or altruistic? Right. Baron and Luthien had this opportunity presented to them. Thank you, Fingal, so much. Um, to <laughs> thank you, Daddy. Right. Get a Silmaril in such a way that they weren't, you know quote possessed by it Mm -hmm. but is there hope for anyone else to do the same thing which i think we'll see play out obviously as we read the next you know couple ending chapters Mm -hmm. of the book but right now thinking about it like it is difficult to think of how could anyone else plot wise be set up to right like retrieve one of these and not have some sort of, you know, horrific fallout. Right. And Baron and Luthien did have fallout, right? He dies, she has to give up mm-hmm. her mortality, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But at least they do kind of get their pseudo-happy ending for the two mm-hmm. of them. This is sort of their they lived happily ever after moment. Right. Um, but it's hard to imagine another situation like this where right. someone would be able to you know, yeah. have a like a pure motive mm-hmm. for retrieving a Silmaril. Right. And and even though their motive is pure, the end result is still it goes to someone whose motives aren't pure. Right. Like Thingle becomes a so like the question is both like, yeah, how do you get it set up to get it in a way that you're not gonna sort of get it for corrupt purposes, but then like where does it go after that? Right. <laughs> like how do you sort of um like where do you take it? What do you do with it? Uh you know. Is it like Indiana Jones? It belongs in a museum. Like, what are you supposed to do with this rock now? Right. It seems to, like, bend everybody to malign purposes. And I think Tolkien wants us to ask that question. I think he answers it at the end of the books. I mean, Mm -hmm. something does, spoiler alert, something does (laughs) happen with the Silmarils. Right. Um, You know, but he does want us, I think, to be asking that kind of philosophical question. Well, what do you do with it once Once you have it? Yeah. When everybody wants it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it because has a history be... for, like, a history of making people mm-hmm. be really big dicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right. It essentially becomes dangerous to have it too. That's the other side of it. Right, you're it's constantly like, threatened. Right. Yeah. So, it is interesting here how we're seeing that 
being re-emphasized here. And I think, yeah, as you were saying, like maybe that helps us understand the weird structural beginning of this section. Maybe. I think, I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's kind of, I think it's what you were talking about with, you know, Maethro's kind of getting the gumption to be like, ah, they did it. I can too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, still interesting to me that it is inserted at the beginning of this chapter mm-hmm. rather than just tagged on to the end of the fall or the previous chapter. Right. But at the same time, I think maybe we've done a nice job of kind of figuring out why we're being reminded here. Yeah. um, How Baron and Luthien go on to live their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe, well, should we talk a little bit about the unnumbered tears? (laughs) Yeah, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. What a great name. How fun for yeah. everybody. Um, it's not fun because in case you're, for those of you keeping track at home, it's uh, a direct reference to the Doom of Mandos. That's right. <laughs> it's all coming back around. Um, so if you remember the Doom of Mandos is Tears Unnumbered Ye Shall Shed. And of course here we have the Unnumbered Tears. So uh, yep, it's come full circle. It has. And we actually get maybe a little bit of a mention a whisper on the wind if you will of the valar in this chapter so i don't think aaron that it's like totally i think your theory that like the two the name of the battle right being under tears and that phrase in the doom of mandos are 100 percent connected um this is kind of midway through the chapter for me aaron and i have different editions of the book but um just to keep things interesting at the end of the battle tolkien says night fell in hithlum Mm -hmm. and there came a great storm of wind out of the west so it's almost like the well it's a reminder that the valor are watching they are keeping Mm score at home they know what's happening in middle earth and perhaps this is their last straw Mm -hmm. things sort of uh start to snowball here towards the end um and if you don't know which i feel like you've probably figured it out by now dear listener that like morgoth is dealt with um and the valar play a big part in that mm-hmm. so i think this is kind of our reminder that both the name of the battle being unnumbered tears and this wind out of the west remind us that the valor are still present even though they're not present mm-hmm. except almo <laughs> yes he does get a he gets a direct mention here right he does yeah, yeah. not a not a big one he's not doing no. a whole lot but he is but, mentioned but he is chapter. mentioned yeah um, so they're still tooling around out there yeah i just imagine they have like a fantasy uh league for beleriand <laughs> But it's like, that's, who's that's gonna why they're die? <laughs> yeah, it's like a death pool, essentially. Grim, but probably true. Hey, they gotta do something. They're probably bored. Living forever. I don't know, would you be bored watching all these battles play out? <laughs> well, you know, I was kind of bored reading about it, so maybe. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. I mean, we have, uh, I guess, to the other thing with this battle that's interesting. Um, 
well i don't know i it's interesting to me because i love the dwarves but the dwarves get to be heroes here <laughs> they do they absolutely do let's talk about our helpful dwarves yeah so well i guess we should preface this by saying that the <laughs> the men betray the cause before this yes um so we have this alliance of men from the east surprise surprise um who essentially betray uh, this whole sort of uh, engagement. They're not the sole reason it fails, but they're a big reason why it turns into a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dwarves essentially prevent it from becoming a complete clusterfuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially at the end, because they make this sort of final stand. Uh, and this is the dwarves of Belagost, and, and their king dies in the battle, and then they do this thing where they carry him away, and like nobody attacks them. It's very strange. Yes. They just sort of march away um, after they do their bit. They do um, maim Glaurung mm-hmm. and drive him off the battle, which is pretty cool. Remember the this. Remember this. Glaurung mm-hmm. is maimed. Everybody, mm-hmm. keep this in yep. mind for maybe you know, hint, hint, coming episodes. Yes. <laughs> um, I also love here too setting up the kind of eternal struggle between the dragons yes. and the dwarves, right? This is maybe the only time reading this whole book where I'm like, ah, the Hobbit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. True. There are very few connections between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit for reasons I think pretty well known. Tolkien mm-hmm. basically wrote the Hobbit, and that was like, hmm, I want I want more to happen in this land I've created, and then sort of spun out the trilogy in the Silmarillion and the Hobbit is very different in feel Mm -hmm. and style style and everything. Um, But here is like the one, the one place where reading this book, I'm like, Oh sure. Okay. This makes sense. (laughs) Smaug, like Glaurung is the father of dragons. So Mm -hmm. Smaug would have been presumably a descendant of Mm -hmm. the great worm. And, uh, (laughs) I know. And the dwarves kind of have had perhaps this eternal struggle against dragons mm-hmm. since since the days of Azagal and Glaurung. Well, they both like shiny things. So. That's right. They're both hoarders. Yeah. Um, and on that note, actually, it is interesting. The dwarves uh, had a different role in other versions of this tale. I did deep dive on the dwarves in this. Good. So. Great. <laughs> um, so in earlier drafts, they actually don't come to the battle they just make weapons and basically um sell them so they're basically war profiteers <laughs> cool in other versions um basically they just got a bunch of jewels and gold from elves and men in exchange for all these weapons um and they it says they didn't favor either side so it's like are they also arming <laughs> the other <laughs> side yeah um not clear but basically it it says it suggests that they were neutral enough that they might have also like made deals with Morgoth's hosts sure. as okay. well. So, and and later on, Tolkien makes the decision to essentially make them less bad, um, and now they're on the quote unquote right side of the battle. Um, but yeah, in earlier versions, the dwarves were war profiteers. Great. Yeah. You know, someone's always making money off war. Mm-hmm. That's why we keep mm-hmm. fighting. Yep. The. <laughs> The dwarves were uh, Lockheed Martin um, in the older versions. <laughs> Halliburton. Yeah, Halliburton. Kazan right? uh, Halliburton. Oh, I like that. Yeah. 
Um, I like them better here. I do too. And I think it's cool that we finally get to see them. Like we're told they wear these masks that are like scary to other people. Yeah, they're very cool. Yeah. Um, So they're they're kind of badasses finally. Um, Rather, well, they're still kind of weirdos, but but they're badass weirdos, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) My kind of people. Yeah, that seems right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so they have a pretty significant role. It's funny how often like we're, it goes back and forth between like betrayal and these like just barely holding it together moments. Like the dwarves are one. Uh, there's other men who sort of have this last stand that redeem the action of the men of the East. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always this kind of back and forth, like staving off complete catastrophe. Oh yeah. And you can kind but, of trace it almost paragraph by paragraph. Mm-hmm. Like he talks about, um, Turgon and like the hosts of Gondolin showing up and then the hosts of Morgoth and the men betray everybody. Then we get a par- a paragraph about the elves, then Finra or Fingon dies, and then Turgon has this incredible um conversation with Huor. Yes. Kind of prophetic conversation, which I think we're gonna talk a little bit about mm-hmm. these. Um and so you're right, like it is, I haven't thought about it that way, but it definitely goes like, okay, here's a paragraph of hope, here's a paragraph mm-hmm. of despair, hope, despair, hope, despair, hope, despair. Yep. And I think kind of the whole book is structured, I think that's sort of a microcosm mm-hmm. of honestly mm-hmm. how this whole book is structured, is it's just like the cyclical nature of like, you know, yeah. Baron and Luthien give us hope, and then we have this big battle and it's despair, and then... The children of Huron. Actually, the story is pretty sad, but there's yeah. like a little bit of it ends sort of hopefully, and then like the fall of Gondolin is a little bit of despair, and so we just kind of spiral through this reminder that like life is pain, but life is also mm-hmm. glimmers of joy. Day shall come again. I scream as I hack at orcs. <laughs> Thank you, Tolkien. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we could talk about that interesting conversation you mentioned. Prophetic. Yeah. yeah. Um, This kind of goes into this bigger kind of theme that you mentioned before we started recording. So if you want to start there and we can kind of narrow it down into into Uh, these moments. Or we can start small and (laughs) build out into your... I had to think for a minute what the theme was that I was talking about. (laughs) Uh, are you referring to the question of history and fate? I am yeah. referring to okay. that. Yeah, so we've kind of talked around this idea previously, I think. But this chapter in particular made me think about the question of um, essentially how much control do people or groups of people have over the, the arc of history that we're being given in this narrative? Like how much they seem to know a lot of things that are coming, but how much can they actually affect what's coming mm-hmm. um so the you know the relationship between foreknowledge and fate or doom that we've we've kind of talked about in the past uh, but here we have a pretty uh explicit sort of moment that raised that question for me which is um they're having this conversation about gondolin essentially mm-hmm. and we get the line that says not long now can gondolin be hidden and being discovered it must fall um so especially that last it must fall um suggests that despite knowing 
that it's going to happen. There's like nothing you can do to stop it. Essentially that this Mm -hmm. cataclysm is going to happen. Um, it's just a question of when, um, and, and they don't seem to like be, you know, overly kind of concerned about doing something about it necessarily. They just like, yeah, it's going to happen. It won't be good. Right. But it's (laughs) there's nothing we can really do about it. Yeah. It's it's gotta, gotta happen. I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, it's interesting to me, like how, yeah, kind of resigned the characters sometimes seem to be to the various bad things that are going to happen that they know are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, same, I think, again, just coming off Baron and Luthien, where um, Melian in particular seems yes. to understand their fate, right? And is just like, okay, let it play out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, doesn't try to stop her husband from sending Baron off to get a Silmaril. Doesn't try to help Luthien in any way. Um, doesn't try to really help anybody. I think I mentioned maybe a few weeks ago, and I don't remember if we actually like made it into the made it into the episode. But it's like to be an oracle is sort of useless because you have knowledge, but then you don't have any power to like hear actually change anything that's mm-hmm. going to happen mm-hmm. which is also interesting thinking about like foreknowledge and f- like fate right something that is bound to happen no matter what mm-hmm. especially when we've talked so much about how a lot of this book is really Tolkien looking at how free will impacts the kind of trajectory of history. Right? Yeah. And fate is the opposite of free will in a lot of ways. Right. We have this almost predestination sort of element here. Especially here, here, I think. It's very, very strong that, Mm. like a very strong suggestion that, right, the fall of Gondolin is going to happen. Turgon cannot stop it. Nobody can stop it. So then, like, what's the point of even, you know, like, why is he there then? Go away. Leave. (laughs) Get out of there. Yeah. Abandon all hope. And abandon Gondolin. (laughs) Well, they seem to be just waiting for it to happen, right? Like, they, they're sort of this, like, um, they can't, they can't take any kind of action, right? They can't abandon it. Apparently but not. They also can't do anything to, to to sort of prevent it from happening. So they just sort of are kind of in this stasis um, until it does happen. Right. Um, Useless. <laughs> right. So what? I mean, so yeah. right. So like, what good does any foreknowledge do you then if you can't do anything about it? Uh, you can make peace with your god. Um, and it seems like that's what Turgon has done. <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> um, but again, too, like we talked just a few seconds ago about kind of this hope, despair, hope, despair, like this pendulum swing that Tolkien is doing throughout. Here, I think, is like even a like a microcosm of that. Turgon is mm. saying, you mm-hmm. know, Gondolin uh, can no longer be hidden and being discovered, it must fall. Right. And then Huor respo- responds... 
Uh, yet if it stands but a little while, then out of your house shall come the hope of elves and men. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, though we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me a new star shall arise. Farewell. So Turgon's like, oh, Gondolin's gonna fall. I can't stop it. And Hewer's like, that's okay. As long as it stands a little while, like, there's mm-hmm. hope. Mm-hmm. Also, that new star is Arendil. Surprise, surprise, everyone. <laughs> It's like a not a super veiled metaphor. <laughs> no, uh, you talked about something being subtle earlier, and uh, this is not. This it. is not subtle at all. No. And then Maglin shows up again, which mm-hmm. is surprising. He's there. Mm-hmm. He's yep. cooking up a plot. I'm sure. <laughs> Surely. But yeah, it is really interesting that, like, fate and free will, predetermination, and you know, the right to choose your own, the, right. not even the right, but like just the ability, ability to choose your own path in life are yeah. sort of juxtaposed here throughout. Right. And I mean, even the battle itself is described in those terms too. Like there are a couple points where it almost is vic- victory, but like, uh, you know, a, a certain person either makes a mistake or makes a false move and then the whole thing falls apart again. Um, we're told that, who is it that's driven to like madness by their lust for vengeance when they they bring out oh they bring out the elf when the captured elves and they cut off his limbs and his head oh oh <laughs> yes oh my gosh um, uh, it's, where is that it's early in the ch- oh Gelmir yes so his brother Gwyndor uh, Gwyndor <laughs> is the one who essentially they're they've been instructed to like not take the orcs bait. Yes. And charge out. Yes. They're supposed to wait and let the, this initial host sort of exhaust itself against them, and then they're supposed to swing in, essentially. Um, but because the orcs, they first try to goad him with, like, taunting them, it doesn't work. So then they bring out Gwyndor's brother, and they kill him in front of him, uh, from, in front of him and his men, and he's, his, it says that his um, vengeance is kindled into madness. So we have another moment where sort of vengeance becomes someone's undoing. And here we're told that this is sort of the first decisive break with the plan being victor- victorious, essentially. Like this mm-hmm. is the first moment yes. where things, the pendulum sort of swings back into Morgoth's favor. And it's all because of this one action. Um, so it is interesting how much of... I mean, he it's a, it's a loss of control too, right? So there is this way in which sort of destiny right. <laughs> works through this person's inability to, to master themselves in the situation. Um, so yeah there's always this way in which sort of whatever's faded the outcome that's faded manages to happen I also think it's interesting too that and this is a very small detail but I think says I think says a lot of Tolkien's kind of characterizations of elves and, and men Hurin who is a man is the one who tells the Noldor to just keep like stay cool don't take their bait mm-hmm. wait wait right. wait because he says that the hearts of the Noldor grew hot and their captains wished to assail their foes upon the plain but Huron spoke against it and bade them beware of the guile of Morgoth so like it's a it's this man who's like no 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 rein it in even though mm-hmm. it seems like the elves would be the ones who would kind of be able to have Great. that self-control um but once again, the Noldor, especially the the um, you know elves who came out of Valinor, 
kind of demonstrating that they are perhaps not so cool-headed as Mm -hmm. their kin folk from Valerians. That is a good point. I hadn't thought about about right like because that's kind of like Feanor's whole deal was he was hot-headed um and that got him into a lot of trouble (laughs) and so it it sure did it seems right that in this instance as well the Noldor would be chomping at the bit Mm -hmm. but interesting that a like a man is the voice of reason whereas I think if again we're seeing this as the history mythology of the elves the men are sort of characterized as the ones who maybe are kind of the hayseeds and yeah, <laughs> a little more right. hot-headed and it's certainly the case in the trilogy yeah yeah absolutely so um, hmm. yeah yeah that's something to think about when we get to the trilogy maybe too Right, why the that elves portrayal the flips are, yeah they're so cool and like i think know. they're just old and tired i think that's probably it <laughs> i mean honestly like they've seen so much shit like elrond's like i remember everything <laughs> i mean galadriel's like six thousand plus years old at that point Mm-hmm. she doesn't have the energy for it anymore no right and we yeah we're told in that trilogy too that like the sort of vitality of the elves has ended mm-hmm. they're fading so. Yeah, and the men are new arrivals here, mm-hmm. still, relatively speaking. So, yeah. yeah, but it is interesting that they, yeah, they see more. Uh, maybe their mortality makes them more cautious. I was just about to say that. Yeah. It would make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but elves can die in battle. Yeah. It's... I mean, yes, they could technically come back and they, like, hang out in the halls of Mando. It's not exactly the same as, mm-hmm. you know, when a human dies. But they still die in battle. They would still feel pain. Like still wouldn't be great to get your arms and legs and head and hands chopped off probably not as is what happens to uh gelmir so yep r.i.p yeah bye we're gonna dedicate this episode to gelmir we do get a lot of more kind of graphic deaths Mm -hmm. and battle descriptions in this chapter not entirely sure why but (laughs) it's definitely a lot more kind of blood and gore which for tolkien it's still like not a lot of blood and gore but right we get (laughs) that this guy galmir gets his hands chopped off well first let me make sure i get this right yeah there's a there is an order to it um um okay so they had blinded him so they bring him out they've already blinded him so presumably like his eyes are gouged out or some horrible thing has been happened to him um, they bring him forth crying, we have many more such at home, but you must make haste if you would find them, for we shall deal with them all when we return even so. And they hewed off Galmir's hands and feet, and his head last within sight of the elves, and left him. Grim. Grim is right. Um, so that's what drives Gwyndor to madness. Can't say I blame him. Sounds pretty bad to have to watch that. Um, Fingon dies. Another kind of nasty description. Yes. 
Gothmog hews him with his black axe, and a white flame sprang up from the helm of Fingon as it was cloven. Thus fell the High King of the Noldor, and they beat him into the dust with their maces, and his banner, blue and silver, they trod into the mire of his blood. That one's well, pretty nasty. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, like I don't really yeah. have any thoughts about like why is this battle in particular a little more gory than the others? Uh we don't have the kind of lack of blood and guts as we did with um when Fingelfin dies and then the sort of aftermath where like nobody's really happy about the victory and everyone's really sad about the death and nobody sings about it here it's like the you know the orcs and the balrogs are really glorying in their victory mm -hmm. well it's a more total victory for one thing or ends up being mm -hmm. so i think that's part of the sort of general atmosphere that tolkien's creating in this chapter of like this is something unlike anything we've seen before in the, in the film, really, in terms of, like, the sort of cost of, of what happens. Because, like, it is really cataclysmic mm -hmm. in terms of Balerion. Like, everything changes. Um, you know, Curdens people, uh, Curdens people are either killed or enslaved. Um, right. Uh, and a few escape, including Gil-Galad, important name. Um, he makes it out, but the havens are basically pillaged. Like, there's nowhere safe mm -hmm. anymore, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, we know Gondolin's kind of next. Right, <laughs> um, right. Gondolin's safe for a time. Yeah, so I think the the extreme violence is there maybe to sort of just increase the general sense of danger and peril. Mm -hmm. um, because there is less attention given to mourning, as you said, in this aftermath. is more just like they don't even have time. It's just this sort of route. Right. Um <clears throat> But of course, we do have that image, as you mentioned, at the end of the Green Hill. So there is hope at the end of all of this. But things look pretty bad. Yeah, things look very bad. And, not, and maybe it's, I don't even know if the Green Hill is hope, right? It's just like a reminder, perhaps, for Morgoth. Because these all happen, mm. these all happen on Morgoth's front gates, right? None, none of these yeah. battles. He's not going out and seeking any of this. Which, again, is, I think an important detail right they keep seeking out these battles with morgoth and then they essentially put themselves the elves in these situations where they just get their shit wrecked <laughs> <laughs> they really do yeah um and maybe that's another reason why there's no mourning right at a certain mm -hmm. point do you realize like oh yeah that was our fault <laughs> our bad <laughs> might be Right, and it also makes it more tragic. I think it's you know a very clever device on Tolkien's part, where like you know they seek it out, they don't win. Right, there's no um, they don't get obviously they don't get their Silmaril, but they don't even get a victory mm. no. in battle right, either. Right, right, everything just kind of blows apart. Mm -hmm. The sons of Fador end up scattered. This is kind of the mm -hmm. end of them. Mm -hmm. they're out they're yep they're out of here <laughs> yep they are they wandering as leaves before the wind yeah um we're gonna pause we're gonna take a moment and we'll be back we'll be back 
Let's talk about a curse. We love a curse. <laughs> a curse, a curse. Yeah. So, uh, basically, this is how this. This is really how this chapter ends. Even though we get the image of the the green hill, this is the sort of closing moment here, and the setup for what's coming next is. Um, so Huron's captured mm-hmm. in the course of this battle, um, and Morgoth basically taunts him. He tries to give him to give up information and basically betray the remaining Noldor, but he won't do it. So he gets mad, and he puts a curse on Huron and his children, um, and basically he forces him to see sort of the what's coming next um, to watch the the sort of fate um, of the rest of Beleriand at this point, um, and we're told specifically uh, that Morgoth, you know, he says, with mine eyes thou shalt see. So the curse is that essentially um, he's going to have to sit up on this chair, essentially. <laughs> he's stuck there and he has to watch everything sort of happen. And that's his curse. So what did you make of the fact that it's not just that he has to watch, but that he has to watch through Morgoth's eyes? What did I make of it? Mm-hmm. I don't. Aaron, by the time I got to the point of the chapter, get me out of here, beat me into the beat me into the dust with hammers and Uh, trample my banner into mud. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think it's a reminder of Morgoth's power. Mm -hmm. Um, Morgoth doesn't leave his home anymore. No, he is kind of. Like, uh, he's not a weakling, but like no. he certainly doesn't Diminished. wield power in any sort of physical way. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that he has to see through his eyes and hear through his ears is a re- reminder that A, Morgoth is one of the Valar, mm-hmm. and B, that he's still very powerful. And then he, like, it also clues us into how he always knows these things are going to happen, right? Morgoth, that's kind of the tricky thing about these battles is the Noldor and the elves, the rest of the elves who aren't all Noldor, um, Mm -hmm. and the men who they've kind of recruited to fight their battles for and with them. Um, Morgoth always knows what they're up to. He always yes. has spies. Yeah. He always has the like upper hand, which is why he always wins. Mm-hmm. And I think this is this is right. This is why we all of a sudden realize that Morgoth sees and hears all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only way that that can make sense to me is that he's like, you're going to see how this all plays out through my eyes, right? Because I see everything, right. Except into the, he can't pierce the girdle of Melian. Right, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> maybe an innuendo there, <laughs> unintended. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, right, so right. Morgoth knows everything. Another perhaps reminder of not only that he is a Valar, but just again the power of the Valar. If Morgoth is able to right. see, hear, and know all, then presumably the Valar. We talked about the wind out of the west earlier. Mm-hmm. They are also clued into everything that's going on in Middle Earth at all times. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I wondered too if part of the the curse then is that he also is forced to watch these victories and essentially 
see the defeat as a triumph. Morgoth? Part no, Hirin, when he's seeing it through Morgoth's eyes, like, is he seeing the sort of unfolding of fate, and is he also experiencing sort of the the pleasure that Morgoth is going to get from that? Gotcha. So it's not only physically seeing mm. through his eyes, but then also, like, perceiving it the same way yeah, as Morgoth, Yeah, that's my I question about it, be. too, is right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. What like, is makes that part you... of the sort of punishment? What makes... Oh, sure, sure, sure. So... Well, Right, because so much of like when we're told about Morgoth seeing things, it's always like through the lens of his malice or his anger or his greed. Like, there's always sort of an adjective associated with his vision. So I just wondered if if this is also true of this mm. sort of punishment, and mm -hmm. it would make it would make it more punishing too, right? You're not right. just watching it like sort of neutrally; you're seeing it as as he is. Sure, sure, sure. Because I guess like if he wanted him to see everything, he could have just said you're going to see everything, but instead it's through his eyes specifically. Right. So, like, is he going to be gloating? <laughs> and Hiran's going to have to sort of endure that? But, yeah. I mean, I love that. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough textual evidence for it, but... But it's... I, I don't care. It's a great theory. <laughs> I love it. Right? I mean, because it would be punishing enough... Re right. listener if you have not read ahead and my voice keeps cracking my throat's really dry um if you've not it's read okay. ahead to the children of herein um the mm -hmm. book or the next chapter of turin Terambar, Turambar, but it would be bad enough to have to watch all the kind of horrible things that happen to herein's right. wife and children right. after this battle um but then again, to have to like have Morgoth's like voice in your head, I suppose, uh, yeah, being or, like, "Yeah, this is what my victory right. hath wrought." Ha ha ha! Right. <laughs> and being forced to see it, like, you right. can't look away then because right. he's going to make you see it. Yeah, it's like a Clockwork Orange kind of thing, right? Yes. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Um, but it is. Yeah, it's a very. I don't know. That's. Yeah, it seems to me even more torturous than just being forced to sort of observe it neutrally. Right. Which would still yeah. suck in oh, this yeah. instance. Definitively. Would, would really still suck. Yeah. Um, but, right. To, be, to yeah. then be like clockwork oranged into it might be even... <laughs> not might. Yeah. It would certainly be worse. Mm -hmm. Much more punishing. Right. And I haven't read the longer children of Huron. But I did read the next chapter. And yeah, it's nothing good's gonna happen. Yeah, but. like it is the children of Huron It's it is supremely cursed. Yeah. Well that's the thing, right? I mean, you mentioned about the violence in this chapter, like we are seeing a another shift tonally mm -hmm. in the Silmarillion here to where the stakes are higher, the violence seems greater, um, the cruelties that occur. Mm-hmm. Right, the fallout from the yeah. battle seems to be getting like mm -hmm. worse and worse. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've talked about cyclical nature of this story, but but it's also ramping up. I feel I don't know if you mm -hmm. feel this too, but it seems oh. like it's ramping up. As oh, it's absolutely, the action. Back. Right, we're getting a ton yeah. more action. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And I think too, if we want to look at back at like the last four ish chapters mm -hmm. um structurally we're seeing kind of the same thing i think it plays into this where <clears throat> so before um 
of Baron and Luthien chapter 19 was the ruin of Beleriand, which is, um, you know, grand, grand, grand. Mm-hmm. Fingolfin dies. Beleriand is kind of torn asunder um, after this, again, failed assault on Angband. Um, then we have this kind of microcosm of a tale, Baron and Luthien, mm-hmm. but it is still sort of this the fallout from that battle, right? Baron at the beginning is so weary and his life sucks because he's just been a part of it and his dad is dead and he's been running from orcs, etc., etc. <laughs> then we have chapter 20 of the fifth battle, all this kind of action, world shattering, family breaking, people moving, mm-hmm. stuff happens. And then the following chapter, 21... Turin, again, is that microcosm of what then happens to pretty much a single person or a few people after that. Mm -hmm. So it's like Mm -hmm. here we have the the same structure of like big world event. How did it affect these people? Big world event. How did it affect these people? But also we will come to learn. So like obviously we talked we did Baron and Luthien about how they become really important because their children are, you know, who their children are. Turin and Tour, his cousin, also again kind of like start to lay out another structure. So yeah. it's almost like even though Morgoth is winning these big battles, the people who are going to move and shake the world, who he should have made sure died, don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then go on to right actually be the ones yeah. who affect quote history. Mm-hmm. Morgoth should just been yeah he's just not killing the right people. Right, so like Morgoth is forcing Huron to watch everything mm-hmm. play out to its bitter end through Morgoth's eyes, but it's not all bad. I mean, it's. Like you said, it's ramping up. It's getting worse. Things are certainly bad. I think I read The Children of Huron before I read The Silmarillion, and I remember being like, ooh. <laughs> Things are awful here. What? Like, what is this? And so, like, because I, I didn't really have a frame of reference. Yeah. Um, but there's still, again, like, those that little hopefulness despite the bad. Yeah. 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 I so I wonder, something to hang on to. And, and maybe that is also to go back to seeing things through Morgoth's eyes. Maybe that's why to your point, if it is kind of also Morgoth's perception, why it would be a curse because that would, I mean, that would eat away at your mind, yeah. right? Yeah. You wouldn't be able to like observe and be like, wow, this is sad, but look like, Tour found Gondolin and right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. You wouldn't be able to kind of rationalize any good things happening if Morgoth was like, oh, but Gondolin's going to be destroyed. <laughs> or, like, you know, who yeah. knows what? Um, yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like that reading. I do. You yeah. like your own reading of it. <laughs> No, I like what she said about um, toot toot Aaron and his own <laughs> horn over there. No, that's right. I like a little tugboat, toot my own steam horn. 
No, please. As I pull my com- theories along. Please feel free to compliment me. I- <laughs> oh man. Um, no, I like what you're saying though about how it fits into the larger scope of this tension between hope and despair that we're seeing play out here. Because I do think that is fundamentally the, the, the thematic core of this book. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of constant struggle between essentially giving into despair or finding these moments of hope that seem to be getting slimmer and slimmer. Right. Small we, wins. Tolkien's <laughs> yeah, all about really, the small wins, right? They feel really small this this time around. Yeah, literally, because right here's a, here's a big fail. Mm-hmm. But the small win is that Turin is alive and like, we his cousin Tour also is alive, right? Big fail, Fingolfin dies, Beleriand is ruined. <laughs> yes, <'cause- laughs> small win, Baron and Luthien get a Silmaril, they live happily right. ever after and have a child, right. and that child goes on to sire kings and stars, literal stars. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. It's not all bad. It's not all bad, but it's certainly not yes. very good either. <laughs> no, no, not a lot of hope, but there's still some. And we cling to that. Yeah. And you know what I'm clinging to? What's that, Aaron? The fact that the next chapter isn't a giant battle. That's right. And we have a book to discuss. A book to discuss. And can I tell them? Tell about them. our bonus episode. Tell them. Tell them, Aaron. Tell them all. <laughs> so Clara and I watched uh, The Rings of Power we when did. it came out. And we have some thoughts about it. And we're going to share those yep. in a little little bonus episode um, coming soon. Yeah. To release date TBD, but keep mm. your little ears to the Grindstone. Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. And uh Keep your little eyes tuned on Instagram and Twitter because I'm sure we'll announce on there when it's up and Dropping. ready for listening. We're not going to give anything away uh, right now in terms of no. our thoughts. We just want to say we watched it and commentary coming mm-hmm. soon. Yes. Um, and if you haven't seen it and you want to listen to that commentary, watch it beforehand because we cannot promise no spoilers. Yeah, we can't promise no spoilers. It's just too, it's just yeah. too hard. Um. So. But Aaron, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, sorry, yeah, I do have a casting call. Oh, you do? I don't. That's why I, I was trying been, to rush to the end because I didn't do my homework. I have been thinking and thinking and <laughs> thinking. We have not cast Feanor. No, that's true. He's long dead, but <laughs> we're casting his corpse. <laughs> I'm gonna cast Feanor. I said we could cast anyone. You know, we started yeah. doing this about halfway we through did. the book, so. Um, I picked up my pen again. I have to put it down. It's so clicky. It has the best clicker. Um. Anyway. So who's your pick? So my pick for Feanor is none other than Ireland's favorite son, Killian Murphy. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. He's I can got see that. that look, right? He has yeah. this kind of like indefinable, weird handsomeness but it is so sharp and so <laughs> effeminate and but uh, also very mass uh, he has i don't know some there's something about killian murphy i could just see him as feanor yeah yeah there's so there his his beauty truly 
has like so many indefinable <laughs> qualities, right? Yeah. He looks the part. Yeah. And he's like uh he's unusual looking. He is unusual. Which looking. is the as you said, it's like the thing. Right. The elves. He's and he's like a beautiful man, which is not right. You don't really ever see a man and be like, "Wow, he's so beautiful," right? But, but he's also kind of odd-looking in a striking way, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me, elves are not only like hot, right? They're striking. There's something interesting. So when I'm trying to come up with these casting calls, I'm trying to think of people who have an interesting look about them mm-hmm. not just like oh yeah they're a very attractive person right sure they're hollywood actors in the 21st century you know <laughs> we're conditioned to believe that most of them are attractive well i mean it helps when you have that kind of money right and you can pay and, to uh, pay to make people right make you look people, attractive people's entire jobs is to make you look that way but i'm looking for that je ne sais quoi. Uh huh. Sure. Well, I like that. So, Killian Murphy as Feanor in the movie of the Silmarillion. I love it. What a great casting call. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Just I one today. One. That's okay. So, I'm glad you did. I've been thinking about it a long time. Uh, yeah, you have. You mentioned it a while ago. I think you made the right choice. Yeah, I wanted to cast Feanor. He's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's, I mean, right, he's a big, he's a big player here. So he definitely needs someone to, to play the part. (laughs) And we got him. Probably wouldn't let him have an Irish accent, though. (laughs) I mean, the uh, producers and the directors. You and I would be fine with that. but um, I don't mind, but uh, yeah, I'm sure the... Hollywood authorities would have something to say. That's right. Um, yeah, I love it. All right. Anyway, I think that does it for us. Oh, if yeah. you are reading along with us, that we will just be doing the next chapter, chapter 21 of Turin Turinbar, and reading The Children of Huron, which again is kind of the Baron and the Luthien yes been out of this chapter which is itself a pretty long chapter um i think it's the longest chapter in this yeah book. so if you don't get your hands on the children of Huron, which you might not be able to um i went to order a physical copy of the book i was going to get it from the library um and decided not to it was back ordered on amazon it was back ordered at our local bookstore i tried bookshop.org which if you don't have a good local independent bookstore mm-hmm. um is a great 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 place to buy books it does give money back to independent bookstores um if you are trying to avoid jeff bezos um in general it's a great <laughs> alternative so it was backward on bookshop.org the only place i could get it was barnes and noble surprisingly so I'm not sure if there's now a rush on all things Tolkien because this new show has come out and people are like, got to bone up. But um, just a warning to you, if you are trying to read along with us, it might be a little difficult to get the book in time. So right. order now if you are interested. Certainly check the library if that works for you. Um, if not, I do think more so than Baron and Luthien, you're going to get more out of this standalone chapter yeah um 
that'll sort of help inform our conversation um, around the book. So I don't think you'll be, you know, lost or confused or anything because it is like, it's like a 25 page chapter. Yeah. It's either uh, the longest or the second longest. It's, it's up there with Baron and Lithian. Yeah. We'll do our homework. You yeah. kind of do yours if you, you know, want to. Do whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Follow your heart. That's right. We'll end it on that. Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening as yeah. always. And we can't wait to chat with you soon. That's right. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ah!